electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The Israel-Hamas war intensifies and a humanitarian crisis grows. Many business leaders are speaking out, but happiness expert and former CEO Arthur Brooks warns there's risk. We need leaders to say, I don't have an opinion about everything. I do personally, but my corporation is not competent to be weighing in on everything. We need policies of saying less about current events. What does the conflict in the Middle East mean to the price of oil? Energy watcher Dan Jurgen weighs in. No question that there's geopolitical risk in the price now that wasn't there a week and a half ago. All that today, plus Swifties go to the movies. The activist trying to wrench News Corps control away from the Murdochs. Good luck with that. And the new, new vote for a Republican leader in the House. Without a speaker, nothing can get done. Nothing can get done. It's Monday, October 16th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cure, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. Uh, happy Monday, folks. Here we go once again. Let's take a look at what's happening. Israel and Hamas are each now denying reports of a ceasefire that would allow foreign national Palestinians to cross the border from southern Gaza into Egypt today. Uh, that temporary border opening was uh, also supposed to allow humanitarian aid to enter. This hour, it is unclear if that uh, border crossing will open. Last night, uh, President Biden speaking on CBS's 60 Minutes, he warned that Israel would be making a big mistake if it seeks to occupy Gaza. He also spoke out about finding U.S. citizens who are unaccounted for. We're saying we're going to do everything in our power to find those who are still alive and set them free. Everything in our power. And uh, I'm not going to go into the detail of that, but there's, uh, we're working like hell on it. Senator Chuck Schumer visiting Israel over the weekend. Yesterday, he posted on X that his delegation was rushed to a shelter to wait out rockets fired by Hamas. He said that when he returns to Washington, he plans to lead a bipartisan Senate aid package for Israel. The message is it's a difficult task, but we will give you whatever you need to achieve it. Uh, We asked, we met with the defense minister and they have a long list of things they need. And as leader of the Senate, I am going to move a package on the Senate floor, ASAP, to get Israel what it needs. And we will have broad bipartisan support. It's a critical time for the House of Representatives to get back in session to have a Speaker of the House. We know what's happening with Hezbollah in the north of our dear friend and close ally Israel and what's what's been happening from the south with, with Hamas. So it's important we're back functioning as a House of Representatives. We need a Speaker. 
Let's get to the power vacuum in the United States Congress. The Senate returns from a week-long recess today, but without a House Speaker. No legislation can pass in Congress and advance to the President's desk. That means there will not be any movement on an emergency security aid package with funding for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and U.S. border security until the House selects a Speaker. It's been about two weeks now. Republicans actually nominated Jim Jordan after Steve, Steve Scalise failed to secure enough votes last week. But opponents are standing firm, setting the stage for another unpredictable floor vote this week. As of last week, there were about 50 to 55 Republicans who said that they would not vote for Jim Jordan. So big question as to whether or not they can actually get that passed when it's taken to the floor. Who do we think comes in? There had been reports over the weekend that potentially Patrick McHenry yep, would be the person who would, would be back in. Not, not as yep. speaker, but they would give the speaker pro tem more powers. Uh, the mm -hmm. Democrats would go along with right. that so that you could start moving legislation and they would authorize that maybe on a six week basis every six weeks to see. Um, that's not something the Republicans are super fond about at this point. But um, again, this is the second right. week you are now going into a, a house without a speaker and without a speaker, nothing can get done. Nothing can get done. This is a story that a lot of folks in the media land are paying attention to. Starboard Value now building a stake in News Corporation and planning to push for strategic and governance changes. That's according to a story in the Wall Street Journal. Of course, uh, they are the target of this in some regards uh, as being owned by News Corp. Uh, it says that the actors plans to push for a spinoff of its digital real estate division. It also reportedly urged News Corp to collapse its dual class share structure. Let's see if the Murdochs want to do that. Uh, all of that, of course, gives the Murdoch family voting power in excess of their economic ownership. That good you know, luck you, with that. Wait, yeah, yeah, good luck with that. If you have a dual class share, there's no way you're giving it up. The whole thing. And by the way, you knew that before you bought any of the shares. Before you got in, so the whole thing doesn't make much sense. Right, I don't get it. Is it possible that News Corp is vastly undervalued? Yes, because this real estate piece and a couple of the other pieces don't necessarily make sense together, and that there's a discount because it's a conglomerate. 100% there's a discount relative to some of the other sort of peers, no question. But the, the question is, would the Murdochs really be willing to give up the dual class? Now, maybe there's a question mark about whether they'd be willing to give up real estate, meaning yeah. if this is just enough to sort of push that piece, but that's not gonna get you the total multiple change that they're talking about, I don't think, we'll see. Yeah, well, and, and just, hey, we want your votes. The Murdoch right. family's gonna say, forget it, talk to the hand. Like, That's yeah, no. pretty much. All right, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour concert film brought in somewhere between 95 and $97 million in its opening weekend, according to distributor AMC Entertainment. That fell short of the $100 million that box office analysts expected, but it was the biggest ever concert film release in the United States. It topped Justin Bieber's Never Say Never, which hauled in $73 million in a weekend back in 2011. According to movie data firm Intelligence, the average ticket price was $20.75. A whopping 60% of tickets were bought in advance compared to the typical 40% presale rate for large tentpole films. And nearly 80% of the audience was female. Yeah, probably no shock. Very hard for Hollywood, though, to model what this film will do next week or the week after. Because unlike, typically there are films they come out in week one, it's a big premiere, and then they can model what the drop-off is gonna be over the next couple of weeks. Apparently, this film is very difficult for everybody to figure out, A, because it's an AMC project, right. and B, because 
it's just a diff the whole thing about it is different. So the people, who, for example, what you were talking about in terms of making the reservation for the seats. Mm -hmm. Does that hold over to next week? Does that hold over to the week after? Do they after? go back and see it two or three times? Do people see it two or three times? Do you see it one time? Yeah. Do you see it never? Do you, is, it, is it the people who wanted to see it the first week did it because they missed the concert? Is it, anyway, yeah, hard to It's going to be interesting to watch. It'd be very this interesting has to been see what happens. an interesting experiment. And also interesting least. to see whether it also brings other people back into the movie theaters. That's always, I mean, that was one of the things that, that Anna Marin is trying to do is obviously get people back in movie theaters. Does this change the dynamic for people who weren't going to the movies or back going back to an AMC do you say oh this is such a great experience it's such a different experience because you know if you if you go to see one of these movies, I haven't seen it but if you see online everybody's standing up in the theater half the time dancing and singing that's so, so different yeah, exactly so different then but it, the the interesting thing is they've had so many events like from Barbie right. by itself Barbie and Hyper right. to this if you can create that event after to create, event look, after event that's what you need this is going to keep them keep in. them rolling this yeah this October for, for sure. Cheese will be next. Coming up, the art of speaking up. Happiness expert and Harvard professor Arthur Brooks weighs in on the pressures for leaders to become advocates. The point of the matter is I don't think Americans are sitting around their homes saying, I wonder what the CEO of Kentucky Fried Chicken has to say about the terrorist attacks. His advice for corporate America right after this on Squawk Pod. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. This is Squawk Pod today with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. As the Israel-Hamas war enters its second week now, leaders in politics, business, education, and other areas are now under pressure to respond appropriately to the violent conflict. For a closer look, I want to bring in Arthur Brooks. He's the president uh, emeritus of the American Enterprise Institute, a Harvard University professor and a columnist for The Atlantic. His latest book is Build the Life You Want. He co-authored it with Oprah Winfrey, and we could use his wisdom on a morning uh, like this. Arthur, it's great to see you uh, under circumstances that are a little or not a little, a lot less uh, great. Help us just in terms of thinking about, and I, I want to talk about sort of what's happening in the Middle East, but I want to talk about what's happening here and the conversation, the rhetoric around it, uh, especially in the, the university setting. Uh, there has been a lot of debate. We had Mark Rowan from Apollo on the broadcast last week, who famously has now sent a letter uh, calling uh, for the ouster, effectively, uh, of the head of uh, the University of Pennsylvania for not condemning um, a, 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 a Palestinian uh, writing festival that he believed was anti-Semitic. President McGill is not an anti-Semite. President McGill is just not capable of exercising moral leadership. But this is a debate that's happening around the country and what the right language is and how people should or should not be held accountable. Yeah, that's right. Hi, Andrew. Good to see you and, and, and great to be with you as always. 
This is a really tricky situation that has actually grown out of the advocacy wars regarding business and, and, and universities over the past decade or so, in which there was this idea perpetrated on leaders all over the country that silence is violence. I mean, it's sort of catchy. Uh, and, and the whole idea is when something is really controversial, we need to weigh in as leaders, leaders of corporations, leaders of universities, all kinds of leaders have to weigh in. If they don't, that shows that they don't care or it might be interpreted as having, I guess, the wrong opinion about these types of things. The truth of the matter is that silence is not violence. Silence is simply silence and it's often prudence. What we need at more universities and certainly corporations is that we need leaders to say, I don't have an opinion about everything. I do personally, but my corporation is not competent to be right. weighing in on everything. We need policies of saying less about current events. We need policies of saying less about political issues. Now, what's happening is that activists are bullying leaders. They're bullying them to say things that they want them to say. And if it looks like they have enough power, then when the leaders are right. are, are, are are leaning into this, they wind up actually getting on the wrong side of all kinds Arthur, of issues. But, but let me give you let me give you two examples where maybe it comes into business. Maybe you believe it's about character. We always, you talk about character. You talk about morals, right. about people having a moral code. Uh, you saw Bill Ackman last week. Uh, similarly, now Ken Griffin uh, in today's newspaper saying, I don't want to hire people like this. I don't want, right. I don't want to hire people who are uh, part of these uh, 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 groups that have signed letters saying that, uh, uh, that, that Israel is responsible uh, for what's happening uh, there, right. that, it's, that it's not Hamas, people who are not condemning Hamas, and, and saying, why should we have these people working in our, uh, in our offices? Uh, others have come out, you know, Larry Summers has said, uh, some of those folks who signed those letters might have made mistakes and the like, but you, you can see how this becomes a business issue quite quickly. Right, for sure. And, and you know, the key thing to understand is that, that when employee groups actually speak as if they're speaking on behalf of the organization, then the leaders have to say they don't speak on behalf of the organization. Nobody speaks on behalf of the organization except the leaders of the organization and to distance themselves from those people. Look, the people who are signing letters on one side or the other, the conflict, they're responsible for their own signatures. But the university itself or the company that actually houses these groups is not responsible for them. We have to make Make a policy of saying that people can't speak for us. Don't make any right. mistake about it. These are not our opinions. But what do you, I, this whole idea of silence, um, you know, especially on an issue like this, which is so barbaric and to me so disgraceful and so straightforward in my mind. And, and maybe, look, there are people who can disagree. And, and by the way, there's a fair debate to be had about what type of retaliation should take place, what that looks like, how that works. I think people can have that conversation. Uh, but at the same time, to not look at what uh, Hamas did uh, to these Israelis, to, to be dragging uh, grandmothers and, and shooting uh, kids. And, I mean, all of just, it's so horrific. Why, why should a, a corporation be silent? Shouldn't a corporation stand up and say, this is absolutely 100% wrong? Yeah, no, this is absolutely 100% wrong. It's absolutely the case. That, and, and I believe we should stand with our sisters and brothers in Israel in the face of this barbaric terrorism, of course. But the point of the matter is I don't think Americans are sitting around their homes saying, I wonder what the, what the CEO of Kentucky Fried Chicken has to say about the terrorist attacks. 
the truth is that people have these opinions. People have, I think, normal opinions. They have the right opinions for the most part. And we don't have to look to corporations that, or even universities that, that, are, that are dedicated to inquiry, not to advocacy. I think we can imagine the decent people are on the right side of these things. And we don't have to say everybody must get on the record all the time and therefore put their organizations on the record all the time. That's not the competency of organizations. Arthur, how, how do you separate what the leaders of these corporations say from, um, from the organizations themselves? And I, I guess I would say we have so many people who come on the show and say that it's the business community's responsibility and business leaders' responsibility to stand up and show real leadership because they say they find it lacking in Washington, they find it lacking in all kinds of other places around us. Um, what's a business leader to do? Yeah, a business leader has to actually focus on the business and talk about the actual values of the business as opposed to current events, social events, and political events of the day. There are lots and lots of cases where world events will impact a business itself, and in that case, it's absolutely appropriate. If there's something that's happening around the world and the company's involved in that part of the world, especially as it impacts the business, then they have to say something about it. But when it's unrelated, it's a distraction right. from what they're actually trying to do, the, the, the business of actually doing creating their product and jobs and opportunity and growth. And to say that everybody has to weigh in on everything all the time is a real distraction from all of us having the conversations that we need in this country, especially right. as citizens. Okay, but turn this around. So we had Jonathan Greenblatt on the show um, from the ADL, right. Anti-Defamation right. League, last week. He is circulating a letter, which he has been asking CEOs across the country to sign. CEOs want to talk about you know, EPS, if you will, right, not ESG. I, I understand that impulse too. But there are some issues that are political and there are some that are just moral. A lot of them have and others have not. And there's clearly, as you said, silence is violence. There's a view and maybe you think, maybe you think he's a bully. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, hap I happen to uh, agree with that side of things, which is to say that I would think that a, a letter that says uh, that you condemn what Hamas did uh, would be a relatively easy thing to sign. But I can't tell if you're saying that maybe you shouldn't sign that because then it gets you uh, into sort of all sorts of other places. And that, frankly, from a business perspective, uh, it's unrelated. Yeah, so I've been asked to sign many letters. And as you know, I was a CEO for a long time. I was the president of a think tank in Washington, D.C. And there were a million letters that came across my desk with all kinds of things that I absolutely agreed with, and I didn't sign them. And the whole point of that was because I was leading an organization dedicated to inquiry about all different types of things. And each of my scholars and, the, and my employees, they had their own opinions. But my organization didn't have an opinion on things outside of the competency of what we were actually doing. So I agree with this. Look, I agree completely with the letter that, that, that the ADL is promoting. I completely agree with it. I would sign it as an individual. I'm just saying that, that, that corporations don't have the competency to actually take the organization in that direction. Arthur Brooks, it is a longer conversation, and I hope we have an opportunity to continue it. Uh, it is always very good to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. To hear full interviews with Squawk Box guests like the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt and Apollo's Mark Rowan on anti-Semitism and the responses of the business community to the war in Israel, please check out the full Squawk Pod feed on your podcast platform and you'll see all of our past episodes. And next on Squawk Pod, how the Israel-Hamas war is hitting the global oil markets with author, economist and energy expert Daniel Jurgen. And if the war generally spreads, then I think you would really start to see almost a real fear in the market. 
that would really drive the prices up because people don't know what's going to happen. How war impacts the world's economy after this break. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Becky, cue. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. Crude oil fairly calm this morning, but Friday it posted its biggest daily gain since April. WTI and Brent each gained close to 6% as traders weighed the possibility of a wider Middle East conflict. This morning, WTI is up another 55 cents to 88.24. Brent is above $91. And Dan Jurgen joins us right now. He is the vice chairman of S&P Global. And uh, how much of this idea that this could be an expanding conflict in the Middle East is, is priced into the oil market? Well, at this, uh, at this point, it's the expectation or the worry about it. Yeah. It was also the other thing that happened is that the U.S. started to put sanctions on Russian on people handling Russian oil. So those two things. So I think we're going to see this kind of volatility in the price until it's clear whether this is a limited conflict or whether it spreads. I mean, on some levels, it's surprising that oil prices are not higher. This comes, I guess, after a pullback that we've seen recently, just about the overall global demand picture. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, it's the demand side. I mean, it was a macro that was kind of pulling down the oil price. Now it's kind of uh, it's holding. But no question that there's geopolitical risk in the price now that wasn't there a week and a half ago. Dan, you have made some really interesting comparisons. You point out that uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, is the 50th anniversary of the Arab oil embargo. Obviously, the attack from Hamas on Israel comes 73, 50 years after the 1973 war. What's the same? What reminds you of the same of these things? And how are we different? from? Well, what's the same, of course, is that a massive surprise, uh, both in intelligence and, as we heard before on the show, a policy failure. Secondly, uh, it is deliberately choosing a Jewish holiday when people are at home and are specifically not supposed to be at work. So those two things are the same. What's different is this is not nation states that carried it out, but groups. The second thing is that in 1973, the U.S. was the largest importer of oil in the world. Now it's the largest producer of oil. And thirdly, very interesting, in 73, it was the Arab countries that did the embargo. Now those Arab countries are in a dialogue with Israel. And the country that was supplying oil to Israel in 1973, Iran, is now the real adversary. Yeah, I was going to say, these these are groups, maybe not nation states, but backed by a nation state, Iran. Right, that's right. I mean, it is clearly, I mean, the debate is how much was Iran deliberately specifically involved in it, but there's no question that this is one of the groups that has relied heavily on Iran for support. So if, if we have those distinct differences, how do you think this plays out differently if the conflict expands? Well, I think if it, it, it I think what the concern is disruption and the concern is what happens with Iran. For instance, the U.S. could tighten its sanctions on Iran and Iran could respond by uh, seizing tankers. All of that would rise the price. And if the war generally spreads, then I think you would really start to see almost a real fear in the market uh, that would really drive the prices up because people don't know what's going to happen. But right now it's kind of a holding with this geopolitical tension at this kind of level. What, what, what worries you the most? What, what concerns you? Well, I think it would be this, if this isn't contained, if it spreads, uh, if it becomes a larger conflagration across the Middle East. I mean, what's 
concerning on that front is hearing from just about everyone reporting from Israel right now, uh, people who have sources there, people who have been following this for decades and decades, that this time is different. Because this attack was so brazen, it has solidified Israeli sentiment and hardened uh, even people who were looking for peace before. Yeah, I think it's just, it's transformed it. And I think it's the shock that you've seen on some of the, uh, what papers have recovered from the assailants, that this, that, that, that October 2022, this was in planning for two years and simply was not observed. It was assumed in Israel that Hamas was looking inward. So it's an incredible surprise and the degree of organization and the lack of preparedness to deal with it. We know what a lot of these Middle Eastern countries are saying, the, the, the countries surrounding Israel. We know what they're saying publicly. What do you think a, a country like Saudi Arabia is thinking? Well, Saudi Arabia, I think, was really the crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, had said the other day, uh, day by day we're getting closer to recognition with Israel. And so they see the, the, um, the dislocation of that as a, real, as a real setback. And they have no love for Hamas, which is aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood and is aligned with their major uh, antagonist, which is Iran. We may be the largest producer of oil in the United States, and that is definitely different from 1973, but it doesn't isolate us from huge spikes in oil prices. Absolutely. It is one global oil market and the price will go up. By the way, we're uh, w just a year away from a presidential election and gasoline prices will become politically very significant what happens. So there's a whole domestic side to it. There's one other thing about 1973 and now that's the same. 1973, the U.S. was in a political crisis, Watergate. Well, we're kind of in a political disarray, particularly when you look at the Congress right now, and people around the world are seeing, seeing that too. You know, we, we not only are not isolated from spikes because of the global market, you point out it's, we're heading into an election, Gas prices are going to be very sensitive, but we don't have the SPR to fall back on now. No, I mean, we've that. used about half of it, so it'd be harder to use it. And we're kind of getting to a level where you don't want to use it. So right now there is spare capacity, but it's primarily in the Middle East countries who are, are keeping a floor under the price of oil because for what's the key thing that's going on in the market, if you put aside the conflict, is that it's not China that has been the pressure on the market. It's the growth of uh, non-OPEC plus production, which is actually matching uh, the growth in demand. I know it's really complicated to try and figure out where oil prices are headed based on the idea of whether or not a conflict in the Middle East expands. Um, but what would you be telling people right well, now? Well, I'd say, it's, of course, guess? it's on the one hand. The other hand, yeah. if things are, are kind of stable, then I think next year we're probably looking at prices in the mid-80s mid range would be what we'd expect. That's the and, best case scenario. Yeah, that's the best case scenario. That's right. Uh, of course, in terms of a conflict, then the price that spreads and starts to affect disruption of supply, disruption also of infrastructure that's necessary for the production and transport of oil. Then we see the, we see the spikes. And there's the only buffer is really in the Middle East right now. And the other problem with that is what it does for inflation around the globe and the... Right, exactly. Sort of all the thinking about inflation and where we are has to be revived and also the impact on the economy. Mm -hmm. I have a, a question that has nothing to do with the Middle East, but I'm just curious what you think about it. Uh, because the other big issue that we've been talking about over the last several weeks is the UAW strike. And part of that has to do with EVs and the like and this idea that maybe EVs are not gonna come as fast or it's gonna be very expensive for them. How do you think about the EV world right now 
in the context of the strike and how that's going to affect the price of oil or not in, well, in, in I, short term, yeah, long term, anything? Well, of course, the strike is also what's going to happen to the jobs because you need less people to produce cars right. if you're making EVs. The thing that I focus on is, uh, is the constraints on EVs that every electric car has two and a half times more copper than a conventional <laughs> car that so suddenly metals become a a strategic commodity in the way they're, they're not. And I think when you look at the numbers that are projected by 2035, you see a lot of stress on, uh, on the components, the mineral component, component parts. Yeah. But not, and, you, and you think oil does, does, has no, almost no impact? Well, I think, I think when you get prices high, then people are, start to look at electric cars. Now we're seeing signs that maybe people are not as enthusiastic. Right. But the push to electric cars is primarily being driven by policy. Right. You know, saying you can't sell electric cars uh, non-electric cars in California after 2035, that's a pretty strong message. You know, the interesting part, though, is we've seen this in the past, just where SUVs and big trucks were not popular when oil prices would go above $5. They were, right now, they're the profit center for right. big three. They're, keep, they're keeping the auto companies. Right. Better. It's what everybody yeah. wants, but yeah. that's because oil prices have been pretty tame, and as a result, right. gasoline exactly. prices have been. Yeah. So, so consumers, not only at the pump, but also in terms of buyers, are definitely sensitive to what happens to the gasoline price. Dan, thank you for coming thank in. Thank you. Dan Jurgen. Thanks. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting your week with us. And before we go, I wanted to tell you about another podcast to check out, The Forum with Becky Quick from the Economic Club of New York. Featuring conversations with business and global leaders, The Forum takes you behind what had previously been the closed doors of the more than 100-year-old economic club, the premier place for discussion on a wide range of issues. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, wherever you're listening now. This show, Squawk Box, is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the very best of our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.